Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. On the show this week, the pensions regulator has committed itself once again to the proposition it's not easy being green. It's introduced a new climate change strategy featuring a range of new standards for requirements, duties and reporting obligations, with the promise of guidance to come. We'll explore its contents and how easy or difficult they'll be to implement. Then, the National Audit Officer's warned, pointed out rather, that the Treasury has yet to set out in any meaningful detail how it intends to support schemes in the implementation of the McLeod remedy. The government's chosen solution, the deferred choice underpin, may be the fairest, but certainly isn't the easiest thing to implement. We'll ask what more the Treasury can do, and what schemes need to do themselves, to fix that perennial problem. Finally, some brave chap called Jim Osborne, a Scottish lay trustee, stuck his head above the parapet to propose a bold new idea, the National Pension and Investment Fund. It would, he said, begin with consolidating all public sector pension funds, whereafter, and I quote, the resulting fund will act as a powerful magnet attracting funds from defined contribution schemes as members transfer from useless DC pensions into a state-sponsored defined benefit scheme. Experts have, to quote our friend Stephanie Hawthorne, poured scorn on the proposals, criticising Mr Osborne's blog post for having its basis in something other than reality. That being said, history remembers the revolution begun by Martin Luther nailing his radical theses to the church door, so perhaps, if a blog post can be said to be the equivalent, we could look forward to centuries of bloody and violent conflict to come. My name is Benjamin Mercer, I'm a reporter and pensions expert. I'm joined today by Kim Gubler, chair of the Pensions Administration and Standards Association, and by Ray Martin, director at HS Sole Trustees. Thank you both very much for joining me. We will begin then uh, with the pensions regulator's new climate strategy. The regulator is demanding that trustees add more uh, climate change information to their scheme returns. It's promised enforcement action against those who do not comply with certain basic requirements. It will be adding climate questions to the scheme return. The package of measures includes an update to the trustee toolkits. Funds that have published their annual reports since October 2020 will need to publish an implementation statement explaining how or whether certain policies fit with the scheme's statement of investment principles. Uh, And the hope is that by 2023, 90% of defined contribution scheme members will be in schemes reporting in line with Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosure Requirements. Ray, I think we'll begin with you, if that's okay. So I I did joke at the beginning that that environmentalists are keen on energy efficiency, but nevertheless requiring a lot of energy from trustees to implement all of these new measures. How much work does this new charter of measures actually represent for trustees? How big is the burden that's introduced? Um, I think it is quite a big burden and it, it does take a lot of work. I think it, to some extent the, the public sector, the local authority pension schemes have been, been ahead of private sector schemes in this area. So I, I'm involved, I chair the pensions board of the East Sussex Pension Fund and we've done a lot of work in the last two years in, in terms of our impact on the climate and their, our investment strategy and made some significant changes. But I think they need to start thinking about it now. So oh, even though the regulators' uh, current uh, requirements are only going to extend to large schemes initially. I think schemes of all sizes need to start thinking about how this is going to impact them on the in the long term, because although it's over five billion to start with, it's soon going to come down to a, bi- a billion and perhaps e- even, even lower. And I think all trustees need to really think about how these requirements will impact on them and what changes they need to make and work with their investment advisors, whether that be a fiduciary manager or an investment advisor. In over the over the coming six to eight months, I completely agree with that. And it's quite interesting because obviously, as the Pensions Act was going through the various stages before it it, it became law, a lot of the organisations, investment consultants, managers, etc., their preparedness and readiness was quite, shall we say, in its early stages. But actually, I've been quite surprised, even you know. We're on the 13th of April and actually quite a lot of, of, work, of work has been done. 
but I, I do agree with, with Ray. I think that trustees have to start with their investment beliefs. That's essentially where they start. So they have to sort of revisit that, you know, where they had to, to determine what they were doing with E and S and G and to include the whole lot to sort of see because, you know, there are some schemes that are within a year or two of buyout and everyone is, is sort of talking about the sort of the long term benefits of environment and climate and you know there you get the some pinch points but going back to what Ray said you know yes it is the largest schemes but it's also the master trusts and not all master trusts are huge and over five billion pounds you know in fact I think very few of them are so so sort of need to 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 be looking at uh, the preparedness of of those master trusts and I think that's where uh, TPR gets its 90% of DC members because effectively it's saying in the first cohort there's going to be you know they've got to comply anyway and they'll be at the very early stages so hopefully by the time smaller schemes are within that there'll, there'll have been some learnings along the way and as I say that has really accelerated just in this first quarter sort of from an industry perspective. We'll come on shortly uh, to the small schemes question, actually, because I think that there were a couple of things I, I wanted to ask you on that. But um, just before we do that, I mean, uh, Ray, if I can ask you another question on this point, I mean, do trustees themselves get a huge amount of support when it comes to implementing the kinds of regulations that we're talking about, whether it's brand new, you know, sort of these climate change requirements or anything else? Is there, is there a large amount of support available or is it just here is the guidance, here is the regulations, go and do your thing? No, I think there there is a lot of uh, supporter out there, and there are a lot of managers that's starting to think their approach. I think going back to beliefs, the first thing the trustees have to think about, uh, or, or in, in the case of the public sector, the pension boards and the and the pension committees, is are is is their approach to climate going to be divestment, or are they going to in, want to engage and encourage transition? I think that's a very important decision for them to, them to take right at the beginning. Um, in the public sector, there's a lot of pressure. For example, in Sussex, where where, where I'm involved, we, we've got Brighton and a, a big uh, green supporting community who are very keen on divestment. Uh, and and we, didn't, we haven't gone as far as complete divestment, but it's quite a, a, a difficult decision for, for trustees to initially take. H- how do they want to approach their involvement in the transition of the, of the, the climate agenda from a fossil fuel approach to, to, to alternatives? And whether they want to be immediately divesting all of their fossil fuel exposure or whether they want to be engaging with companies in terms of encouraging them to transition. The, the first one is a lot easier to implement. I mean, you just do it and you find managers that are prepared to, to divest and, and, and have an investment strategy with no fossil fuel exposure. The second one is much harder because it takes a lot more work from the trustees to actually think about how they're going to engage with through their managers and through their consultants with companies in terms of a, a, a transition to a to a new future. And if we come back just briefly to touch on, on the point about small schemes that you mentioned earlier and master trusts, I think, are related to this. One of the measures that, that TPR is proposing is that schemes have to take account of climate change in their integrated risk management approach. Um, and I think it's, it is said in, in the document that it's hoped that this will bring more small schemes into the fold eventually, whereas otherwise they might have felt a bit left out. Obviously, it represents a significant amount of administration work. There are costs involved. But there are also benefits of being a larger pension fund in terms of the sway and the clout you have in engagement, in investment decisions, in, in lobbying companies to make decisions. So for, from a sort of a small scheme and master trust perspective combined, is, is it going to help the government's 
prove your worth or consolidate approach. If small schemes are looking at these kinds of regulations and they're saying there's only so much we can do, they're very expensive for us to implement and we don't necessarily have the, the scale required to, to make the most of them. Is this the kind of thing that, that will maybe spare itself more consolidation in the long run, do you think? If, Kim, if you wanted to begin on that one. Well, when you think about it, the sort of from DC perspective, the less than hundred million pound schemes who've got to do the you know, the full value for money ticks on that, prove it or consolidate or move to to something that does. So I think that there's quite a lot of. I don't think climate change on its own is going to to trigger it. I think for those smaller schemes, there'll be a lot of other sort of drivers that are, that are looking at that as, as well. To be honest, it's probably just it's another thing that trustees of smaller schemes have got to look at. And if you think about sort of, you know, yeah, there's support is getting more sophisticated in the sort of advisory space. But it still comes at a cost, you know, and uh, TCFD uh, reporting can potentially say it could only be 20,000. But that's money. It's cash. You know, so there's a lot of calls just going off piece for a second, if you think of if the small scheme is, was contracted out, so it's got significant costs on uh, rectification and, and equalisation, then you've got this cost as well. You've got all of those increasing costs that are coming just to really stand still. So I think that's just one part of the, the, the puzzle that, that will probably drive more consolidation. And just finally on, on this topic, Ray, um, uh, the trustee toolkit, I think, is going to be updated, as I understand it. Um, and the industry, from what I gather, has, has been quite keen on this move and on updating the climate change advice in the toolkit uh, specifically. Is that something you've been you've been following particularly closely? What what does it entail, and why is it so important that the toolkit be updated with this with this new information? I haven't been following it particularly closely, but I think uh, the toolkit does help in terms of ra- raising uh, awareness and driving engagement with trustees. We've seen that with pension scams, the latest initiative that there's been a module introduced in the toolkit on scams and making trustees more aware of what their administrators do and perhaps challenge them. And I think uh, the, the, um, a module on the climate awareness in the regulator's toolkit will make trustees start to challenge more and ask questions, which can only be a good thing. I think on the consolidation point as well, and um, this this is just one. I mean, they used to say in, in the defined benefit plans, one more nail in the defined benefit coffin. But I think this is one more thing that's going to drive towards consolidation. You've got sole trusteeship, fiduciary management, master trust, defined benefit master trust. We're all heading towards a consolidation of schemes. And if you look at pension systems around the world, the UK is quite unusual in having so many smaller schemes. You know, I came from Switzerland in the last seven years. And that, that, that this kind of thing just didn't exist. There were lots more what we would consider master master trusts in Switzerland that operate. And, you know, there, there were perhaps 50 or 60 for a population of 14 million. You know, we've got, I don't know, the last number I saw was something like 98,000 pension schemes in the UK. It makes no sense at all. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when you think about it, other countries also have data on retirement savings you know actual sort of data we don't really we we can say how many schemes we've got probably sort of how many people but we don't have that data i mean the um ppi sort of picked up from the pensions commission in 2004 on on getting sort of that kind of data but that's a a slow burn so it's because we don't have the analytics we're very slow to respond to things like that. So 
you'll probably find that by the time the metrics on it will consolidation will, will have will have happened well we can look forward to that data almost provides my segue uh, moving on from the new regulations to government's attempts to fix mistakes made following the introductions of new regulations passed and the national audit office has passive aggressively pointed to the absence of detailed advice and guidance from the treasury on the implementation of the government's mcleod remedy despite announcing some time ago that it had gone for the deferred choice underpin which represents quite a significant administrative challenge the national audit office says the treasury has likewise failed to set out how it intends to support schemes in its implementation it recommended as a point of urgency that the Treasury, and I quote, develops plans to address the impact of the administrative challenges that its proposals in response to the McLeod judgment will have for employers and scheme administrators so that any changes can be implemented while maintaining a good level of service for members. Kim, I think we'll begin with you on this one, if you don't mind. Um, how yeah. significant is this uh, remedy? I mean, how significant a burden does the remedy represent the deferred choice underpinning, it requires affected schemes to keep two sets of benefit calculations for about 30 years, doesn't it? I'm assuming that's a significant undertaking. Yeah, I mean, it's to be perfectly frank, it's just another thing going back to GMP equalisation. And, and I think sort of your article talked about the sort of resource constraint. You know, we're getting a perfect storm in terms of system providers, what they've got to do to address, you know, say, for example, dual records on, on GMP equalisation the project teams putting together for conversion, the focus on that. And then you've got, although you, you know, the systems providers, there are sort of specialist public sector systems providers, it's still, you know, it's a huge task. It's a huge task to program it. It's a huge task to implement it. And whilst business as usual, once you've coded it and it's in there, it should be automated. It should be uh, straightforward but for one thing it will load costs because business as usual will it will be weighted by say you know 10 20 percent something like that but also as we know with public sector people start stop change hours move around administration within the public sector is is always a challenge i think the problem well, let's go back this was a huge mistake i mean i was living in switzerland the last uh, since 2013 so i didn't realize you know um what was happening after the hutton review and the changes proposed but this transitionary system was clearly age discriminatory and and was a mistake and it was always going to come to home to roost but the problem is the alternative of giving everyone a choice now is just anti-cultural in the public sector so people don't think about pensions until they get to retirement to, to, to get to try and engage with all the members it's just it's, it's, it would be a huge one-off challenge with a huge immense cost compared to the alternative of leaving the choice of retirement where cost is spread over a, a number of years. So you can quite easily see why the, the, the government has done it. The other problem of, of giving people a choice now is what happens if they make the wrong one? And then we get into another round of mis-selling or misadvisory sort of court cases and challenging a whole process of re-looking at this 20, 30 years down the line, which will just be another huge cost and expense. So I, I think the cost the government has to pay for a huge mistake it made in agreeing this transitionary approach with the unions in the in, in, the, in the public sector. Um, it was clearly age discriminatory. It fitted an agenda of protecting people of certain age, but that was clearly age discriminatory. I, th I think you're absolutely right, because basically what because it is correcting a mistake, both the deal with it, you know, in one go, try and communicate and probably not reach everybody, 
or running 30 years or whatever, however many decades of, of records, both of them are suboptimal to have got it, to having got it right the first time. And that it seems to be the, you know, when you think of equalization and sort of the equalization windows, the amount of work that had to be done to correct mistakes that were made in incorrect equalization windows, incorrect application of equalization. Every time something is done, it seems that what happens, there is a first stab at it. People think that that's right. And then some years later, people realize that it isn't. And the whole thing is loaded with costs to try and rectify it. And that's what this is. McLeod effectively is a rectification exercise. It's And it's it's going back to GMP. It's either like your conversion or dual records. It's either do it now, but it's, you're doing it with millions and millions of people. Yeah, and what, what would you do for a default? If the engagement in the public sector pensions arena for people working, I mean, they, they engage when they retire, but whilst they're working, they it's very hard to get more than 10 or 15% to download their annual benefit statements. So they're not going to make a choice if you gave them a choice. So what do you default them to? And almost certainly you're going to default a huge chunk of them to the wrong answer because it's quite hard to make a decision as to which is the right. So for my perspective, it has to be done the way it's been done, but it goes back to the original mistake at the beginning of not getting it right the first time. But it will take a lot of resource. And my concern is that we already have pressure on resourcing and it's been made worse effectively by sort of lockdown recruitment hasn't been as we're not recruiting young people into careers on say administration what we're doing is people are stealing experienced administrators off each other so we're not broadening the pool and i can't imagine why something like mcleod would put off a young person trying to go into pension administration Ray, if you want to close us uh, on, on this one, and obviously the implication in the National Audit Office's statement is that there is some kind of guidance the Treasury can give, which would in fact be helpful, notwithstanding what we've all said before about the fact that every time the government does anything in this area, it seems to have to do it again sometime later. What would you be looking to the Treasury for when it comes to providing assistance? Is there anything it can do to expedite the process or is it really for trustees and lay people and administrators themselves to get to grips with? I think it is for pension boards and pension committees and and, and what are called scheme managers in the public sector, effectively the, the sponsor to work out how they're going to do it and how they're going to manage it going forward and develop their admin systems. Whether the Treasury could create some kind of fund for people to invest in their administration systems, that would be helpful and, and, and make additional contributions to local government to, to address this issue. I don't think it's going to happen, but it would be helpful. Excellent. Well, in that case, we will move on then finally uh, this month is, I think, my one-year anniversary in the pensions world, and it still has the power to shock, scare, alarm, and confuse me. Mr. Jim Osborne's suggestion of a national pension fund, uh, which hindsight must consider bold, if only because of the amount of scorn it has subsequently attracted, uh, would, I think, be a case in point. He argued for the consolidation of all public sector pension funds, creating one huge centre of gravity, which could, would compel the assimilation of private sector-defined contribution schemes thereafter, creating, in effect, one unitary public DB fund with the power to direct pension investments toward as I quote, real wealth creation and the production of useful things. How useful this idea is, is up for question. And that, I think, is the question I'll begin with. This is, I think, the first time I've encountered this proposal in any meaningful way. And a blog post was certainly an odd place in which to find it. Kim, uh, do you want to kick us off on this one? And I don't know how closely you've managed to read Mr. Osborne's proposals. What did you make of them? 
with all due respect to, to Mr Osborne, I don't think that it is a proposal. One of the um, comments was that it isn't based in the real world, and it isn't. In, in, in terms of public sector consolidating investments, but to, to think that that's a good idea is, I think the comment was transferring from useless DC schemes into a DB scheme. And how would that work? The, the comments I've read is this all sort of talks almost in a voluntary sort of voice. To be honest, it just, to me, bears no basis in any form of reality. Ray, would you, would you agree with that? I mean, is there a, a way in which it, it is attempting to address a need, perhaps, but not in maybe the right way? I mean, does it bespeak some want for consolidation, maybe, but is it just addressing it in a peculiar way? Or what would your broad take be? So I think you have to look beyond um, the UK and look at international comparisons and say, you know, where has this been tried and has it worked? I think once you start consolidating public sector schemes, the, the natural solution, because governments have pressures all the time, is they become unfunded. And the logical argument is, so Singapore, for example, runs an underfund, unfunded defined contribution scheme. So there's no assets. People have a notional account and get notional credits every year. It sort of works, but they're a very small population. And to try and do it on a mass population, I, I don't think is workable. You've got um, an example of Chile that, you know, in the 80s tried to convert a defined benefit unfunded state system to a funded DC system, which didn't work either and fell down. Other countries tried to copy it. Argentina tried to copy it and it, it fell over pretty quickly. It sounds good in concept, but one thing that, you know, you have to accept is that capitalism does work to some extent and you need competition. One fund without any competition is not going to be successful in the long run and not going to lead to be- improved benefits for members, be they defined benefit or defined contribution. No, and, and like I said, the shared services model in, in the public sector where you can create better investment governance, better scale, and they're also doing it in the administration as well. You know, that's all right, because what that's doing is that's sort of almost creating exemplars within the public sector. That kind of getting together to create scale is good, in my view. But as Ray said, you know, I just don't see how it could work. No, I mean, I have to say, having in my year in the job so far, spent so much time covering the various different mistakes being made with GMPs and McLeod, I have a sort of preemptive trauma that someone might one day try and introduce change quite so broad and sweeping as this one. All the things that could go wrong are quite exciting. They would keep me employed for a very long time. That, I think, will bring us to the close of the principal part of the programme. There is, of course, always a pensions angle. I think, Kim, you might have one for us today. Did you want to take it away? Um, Yeah, like I did say, it was very tenuous. But in 2017, Horse and Hound reported or mooted uh, the idea of pensions for horses, those equine heroes, you know, your race horses, your winners of the Grand National, your top show jumpers, your Olympians and, and the like. Because what from a welfare perspective, pretty much when they get to the end of their career, not all of them have a happy ending. And so what they basically said is is there should, for those equine heroes, there should be a contribution to a pot that when these athletes come to retirement and are no longer able to do their job, that they should uh, they should have an equine pension. It pretty much died there, but it's about the best I can do. <laughs> equine pension fund is certainly an interesting one. I assume they would want to divest from glue factories. Anyway, well, uh, on that delicate note, I think that does bring us to the close 
of the program. So thank you very much both to Kim and to Ray for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for listening to us. We will be back with you again in two weeks' time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.